how many of you regularly meet atheists, like legit atheists, textbook atheists? I mean, like, I don't believe in any God. I don't, that's all, like. But how many of you have spent a lot of time saying, oh, I read all about how to fight those people if I come in contact with them? You know, it's kind of funny. Sometimes you're like, I'm not saying it's not good to understand how to defend the faith, but if we're not careful, you spend, you can spend your whole life trying to debate someone that you've never met. That'd be strange, right? And so it might be better, now this is something that kind of, to learn how to talk to a functional atheist. Right? They don't, they don't say I'm an atheist in their commitments like I hate God, I don't know, there's no, you know, like they would not verbally say there is no God. They would live as if there were no God. Those are the people you really come in contact with, right? Sometimes you go to church with those people who live as if God doesn't exist, just doesn't impact their life in any way. They are practical atheists. They believe in God, but not so much so that it would change one thing if you were to take him out of the equation of their life. You know, does that make sense? Just practical, everyday practical atheists? Probably met those. You probably looked in the mirror and seen some hint of that before, right? So today we are talking about though someone, and I really think we are we're we're talking about people in the ancient world who had lots of gods. Nobody didn't believe in some form of God in the ancient world, or very rarely were there people. But the question was really like, do they believe in the one true and living God as revealed in Scripture, and do they submit to Him? So today we're looking at a psalm that's going to reveal uh, a lot of things about humanity and their fallen state. Like humanity and their state apart from God, that is, Humanity, the way they come to us, post-Genesis 3. That, that's kind of what you are seeing today. And what happens is, is this psalmist is going to help you see how corrupt they really are. And really, when you erase God from the equation of humanity, what it results in. Like, just take Him out. And you will see what it results in. So, the problem, really, the psalmist is dealing with is that there is no one who really seeks after God, no one who is good, in the sense that humanity, left to themselves, they invent evil. They do wicked things. They're rebellious against God. And when you take God away, they do not really, they have nothing guiding them. They are in a complete and absolute broken situation and God just judgment falls on them that that's the reality so you could say the question would be is there hope for fallen humanity like is it is there hope for those people that don't just say I don't believe in God 
verbally like to you, but they don't believe in God in their hearts? Is there hope for those kinds of people? Well, this psalm brings up hope. And it really concludes with joy. So it's going to be darkness followed by this kind of burst of light at the end. And so that's kind of the way you need to see this psalm. Now here's the other thing. Psalm 14, if you went back and listened to the sermon we preached tonight, you'd be like, oh, this sounds like the same stuff. If you could compare them side by side, there's not a lot of difference. It's the same psalm in different places. There are some adjustments, but not many. Romans 3, 10 through 12. All like he quotes this psalm. So it's one of those things where there's repetition, and uh, repetition in the Bible helps us say, I better wake up and listen. There's some reason that I need to hear this because God's going to repeat it. And he keeps bringing it up. And if he brings it up, I need to kind of bring it up in my own heart. I need to sing about it. I need to think about it. I need to consider it. I need to reflect upon it. Because in this psalm, it's kind of one of those things where most people, you might do that wellness visit every year. Like I went to my regular family doctor because I've been a specialist for different things. Regular family doctor, it had been a while. You know, and I, and, and I went in there and they were like, we got to set you up as a kind of a new patient here. I said, like, hold on just a second. I've been here before, you know, and you know, that kind of thing. But it is one of those things when you don't feel sick, you don't think you need a physician. And when you don't feel sinful, you don't need a savior. Right? And so that's kind of one of the things here that we need to see. This psalm really could just be called fallen humanity. So you really want to see that. So the first step into this is fallen humanity is foolish. That's just kind of where you want to start. As a ground level, fallen humanity is foolish. If you'll look at verse 1. The fool, that's helpful enough, like right from the text, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Like I said, he may not say that with his mouth, but he says it in his heart. When he considers something maybe that he is fearful of in his heart, there is no God, I'll need to be a God in that situation, so I'll plan everything out and make sure that my, I'm going to save myself. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. There are a lot of ways in which we say man i see the glimpse of that fool in my own heart but again this one is given over so the fool says in his heart there is no god if you were to compare that to proverbs where it says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the lord the beginning of folly is to deny that right that's the beginning of folly deny that there is a God and again it may not be with your mouth you may be just jabbering on about God but really in your heart you deny him you do not believe in him you don't trust in him every day the fool preaches this sermon to himself that everything else in this world will satisfy him other than God. Around here, the outdoors will satisfy him. We talked about the goodness of those things, but his heart 
the fool does not go and enjoy the outdoors and cause that to be a form of worship, he turns the outdoors to worship. And you can see that because if you mess with him and his outdoors, he will lash out at you, the fool in his heart. He's not thinking about God. His activities are not redirecting him towards God. They are causing him to worship things other than God. They are causing him to fall in love that, uh, with that which is not God, but created by God. The fool. He's saying, he's preaching that sermon to himself. There is no room for God. So even like the fool says, I don't have time for God. I've got to get to living. We have too much to do. The fool says, there's no place in my heart and life for God. I have too many other things that will satisfy me, that take up my time, that are more important than God. Around here, I believe in God, but nothing in my life reflects a desire to worship and serve God. We love the creature, the creation, the things that we can do with our hands more than God. We create gods of our own making, gods of our own imagination, God's in our image. The fool says there is no creator and redeemer of the universe. There is no triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He does not deserve my whole life. The fool says in his heart, he deserves very little because he's so small and I'm so great. He is so less important. And what I'm thinking about is so much more important. That's the fool. The fool looks at all the treasures of this age and devotes all of his free time and all of his resources to that. The fool is marketed by what sells in the culture. The fool is living its life excited by all the things that all their friends are doing. So dominated by it in so many ways that every moment is caught up in what is the world doing and how can I engage in that so that I can be satisfied and filled and overflowing? The fool says, those things, they're the most pleasing. So the fool spends all of their time looking to find out what they can do in this life that will satisfy their heart other than God. And they scroll and they scroll and they scroll and they scroll, and they scroll, and they scroll looking to find that which will satisfy their hearts. Because God is not enough. 
that make sense? That's a battle, right? Is that a, y'all don't, maybe y'all don't struggle with that. You know, it's like, I don't, I don't struggle with that. No, but I, I think it's like, uh, it is a struggle. And it's something that we have to understand. We say, well, we don't want to get there. We don't want to be there. We don't even want to be close to there. Because when we take God out of the equation of our lives, when we strip God of the central place, we are left to ourselves. And that's the scariest thing ever. I, if I'm, when I'm left to myself, when I'm left to kind of making up what I think is kind of a good life, when I'm left at looking at my neighbor's things, when I'm left to that, I am left to ruin. I mean, that's just sca- it's so scary. It's something that we battle with. It's not something you battle with. It's something we battle with. It's something our culture battles with. And here's what's crazy. Listen to me. The problem is not external things. The problem is not a billboard. The problem is not that uh, you have a different social media stuff. The problem is not all those things. That's not the problem. The problem is your heart. Because your heart, listen, all those things only show what's in your heart. They reveal what's in your heart. They demonstrate what's in your heart. Everything about those things show you. The problem is not that somebody drives up in a brand new whatever. The problem is that your friend bought a house. That, that's not the problem. Going to their house is not the problem. Seeing their house is not the problem. Even if there are people that are flaunting themselves and their stuff, it's not the problem. The problem is our hearts. That's a problem. That's a big problem. And so I just say to you, like, I think sometimes we have to say, it's not that you don't believe in God, it's just that you really, functionally, you don't. And that's a scary place to be to consider yourself. Now, what happens? They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. So fallen humanity with no God, they have no standard or compass to look at their life. There, there's nothing to guide their life. There, you know, if you study about like worldview modernity or the modern world, there was like no God, we still hold on to the standards of right and wrong and good. In our culture, you would say, oh yeah, those were great days in the whatever years, the 50s, 60s, whatever. I mean, those were great days because there was this uh, Christian worldview still left over even if certain people were saying, God is dead. The postmodern world is no God, no like true truths that you can stand on no right and wrong there's nothing that you can say these are absolute truths so when you get rid of god you get rid of absolute truth where are you left i guess finding out what your friends are doing and try to do it that's that's where you're left you look at the culture say i'm not nearly as bad as that if there is a god when i'm weighing the balance I'll be good. That's what you're left with. That's insanity. 
And so, these people, left to themselves, are corrupt. Means that they spoil, that they ruin things. Their corruption impacts the world that they live in. You'll notice what it says, they do, they do abominable things. It's like they do inhumane things, beastly things. They almost become like they, they are separating themselves from humanity in this sense. We are made in the image of God. And so the further they get away from God in their hearts, the further they are away the more inhumane they are, the less human they are, the more you look at them and you say, they are beastly, but they're worse than the beast because they have some level of image bearing in them and so they can come up with ideas and thoughts and they come up with every different way that they might do wicked things. And so you have world wars and stuff like that where millions of people die. By doing abominable iniquity, perverse things. He's saying like, left without God, man is without a compass, without a guide, without direction. And with truly without God, there is no internal moving and driving of one. So, they do not do good. They do not do what is right. Now you might say, are all humans as bad as they could be? No. But they do not do anything apart from God. They will never do anything to the glory of God and the good of others with a pure heart. They will never. They will never. They will never point to the great Creator and Redeemer and anything they do where they do not point to Him is sin. They are not doing good in the sight of God. It does not mean that they are not doing good in the sight of the culture. It means they're not doing good in the sight of God. Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. Now you might say, I'm good. I'm good. Coveting. Wickedness. Deceit. Sensuality. Envy. Slander. You're still saying, I'm good. I'm good. Probably not, right? Pride. Foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. We were created to image God. We were created to live a life under His authority and power. But when God is erased, we are inventors of evil. We take those image-bearing qualities that, that like the animal kingdom does not have and use those for evil reasons. If you have not received a new heart by the Spirit, if you have not been born again, your heart is corrupt and your life will demonstrate it. So fallen humanity is foolish. And here's the thing, God's not blind to it. 
fallen humanity is seen by God. God looks down. That's what it says. From heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. God knows what's going on with the children of men, or the children of man. He knows when He looks down at them that none is seeking Him. It's not like when God looks down, He doesn't look down like you do. You may come in here on a Sunday and think, oh yeah, everybody is seeking after God. They wouldn't be here if they weren't. But God can see into the heart of man. He knows where they are. He knows where we are. Even we don't know where we are. He knows that. God is observing what is going on in the children of man. Now, Wilson states this, in a scene reminiscent of the introduction of the flood narrative and the Tower of Babel episode, God surveys the creation from His heavenly vantage point. Humans are so corrupt and have so corrupted their environment that there is no longer any redeeming social value expressed by their existence. So when you look at the Tower of Babel and you look at the flood, both of those are examples where God looks down, He can see what is going on with humanity, and it is dark and bleak. Remember I said, joy's coming. But first you've got to like say, like there's nobody here, if you didn't think you needed redemption, uh, or if you didn't think you had sin in your heart or in your life, or you were broken, or things weren't right with you, why would you come here? If you don't need God, why would you come here? So the question is then, we say, oh yeah, no, I know that sin is ever-present. It is a frightening thing. I know what is going on, and I need a Savior. So, this is something the Lord does. He shows us how dark and sinful man in his fallen state is. Now listen to this. Wilson also states, the clear implication is that divine judgment is the only appropriate response to the completely corrupt lives of the foolish. That, that's the only answer. What do they deserve? If there's this holy creator of the universe who has like, made these people and they are in complete and absolute rebellion uh, against him as the king and judge of his kingdom, uh, having these rebels there, what, what, would you, what do they deserve? It's God who is perfectly holy and who must judge sin because He is the judge of the universe and He's perfect in every way. When He has these rebels here that are just in every aspect possible, they're saying, there is no God and I will live without Him. What, what do you do? What do you do with that? What we say is the only appropriate response is for God to judge them. Now you might say, but there's so many good people. I mean, there's so many wonderful little people out there. But then you read something like about Sodom and Gomorrah, and you're sitting there thinking, remember Moses, I mean, Abraham's like, well, what if there are this many that are good? And then he's like, okay, if there are this many, that are, you know, I can't remember, 40 and 30, 20, 10. I mean, he just moves down through, and, and he's finally left there with this reality that all of these people are wicked. It's the same way like in the story of, uh, with Noah where it's like the Lord says every intention of their heart is to do wrong. 
So what we would say is, unless grace shows up, like in changes, there is no hope. That's, that's kind of the big story of the Bible. Um, Titus 3, 3-7, and I read this to you often, but I just, I just want you to hear it. This is what it says. For we ourselves were once, now listen, good people, wonderful, the best. I mean, is that, no, it's not, it's not what it says. It says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. What a record. That's a, that's, that kind of seems very close to this psalm. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us because we were so good. No, He just said we're really bad. So why would He save us? Because He could see that we wanted to be good deep within our hearts. No, that's not why He saves us. Because we are like morally superior to most of the people on the planet. No, because He needed a better team to work with. No, because He... There's no because. Why, why would he do this? He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. But according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. What does he do? He saves us because he is merciful. He shows kindness to us. He demonstrates mercy to us we see that on display you are wicked god shows mercy and you say what does god have to do god has to take that old broken rebellious heart and give you a new heart you must be born again by the spirit that's what he has to do he has to change us from within and renew us continually from within We are made right with Him, justified by His grace, that passage says. So, fallen humanity is foolish, and God sees it. Or you could say, and and He is observing that. Now, the next step would be, fallen humanity is in turmoil under God's judgment. That's what you could see. I think that's kind of clear in this text. I think it's important to note it. And and we're going to look at some other passages that speak to that. But listen to verse 4. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and who do not call upon God. Evidently, David's speaking of particular circumstances where there are uh, wicked armies oftentimes coming to devour his people. Have those who work evil no knowledge. Do they not understand That God is like observing this and they are eating his people like bread, which by the way was the staple of that land. People like most every person every day is eating bread. It's a large part of their diet and they are eating bread like it's commonplace to see them uh, walking around with bread. He's saying that's how you are devouring my people. There they are in great terror where there is no terror. Now here's the thing. These people are, they're struggling, and it's funny because they're struggling with things that really, there is not really any terror that should be, but they are anyway. It's kind of one of those things where their guilty conscience, maybe you could say, is haunting them. Or, I think of like 
stories, and David may be recounting those, like of Gideon, remember the judge who with 300 of God's people went to the enemy, and by great deliverance, God like delivers them. Remember that? There's 135,000 people down in the valley ready to go and like fight Israel, and God like breaks Israel down to such a small number that 300 men show up, uh, and, and they like kind of, they shout, and they have trumpets, and they break jars and hold up lights and the army that's against God's people they are so frightened that they begin to kill each other that's what happens and those kind of stories there's others we could speak of but what you think about when you're thinking about that is to just say there's this great terror that comes and they begin to destroy themselves because what happens and we see that through with humanity throughout the ages where they will turn on one another. They keep turning on one another. And you're like, what is going on? God is eliminated from the equation of their life. They are given to excesses, and they begin to turn on one another. And it's a form of God's judgment. And unlike, and you'll notice in that verse, it says that their bones will be scattered, which is a sign of like kind of the greatest of, of uh, maybe the most wretched place you could be because before they would take the bones usually and they would bury them, but these bones are scattered. And unlike the bones in Ezekiel where these old dry bones, God brings life to them, these are left in a state of ruin. So they're rejected by God. They're under His wrath and curse, but it's not even that visible. And they actually turn on one another and devour each other. That's God's judgment. So you say, there is this holy God. Man in his heart says there is no God. He lives that out in his rebellious actions, and it results in the judgment of God. And the judgment of God may, may very well not be what you think. They may, the judgment of God falls on them. As he pulls away, they attack one another. That's kind of the picture. Okay. So fallen humanity is foolish, is seen by God, is in turmoil under God's judgment. And the last thing, fallen humanity, this is the good news, can escape and rejoice. Now in this particular context, you would say, this is kind of this thing that builds up hope in the heart of Israel, where they're saying, like, we are God's redeemed people. What you find out in Romans 3 is, they were as much in need of God's mercy as anybody. That's what you find out, right? And you find out that throughout the scriptures, but I just say very clearly tied to this text, you see that. But Israel is evidently here being oppressed by this wicked people and their promised salvation from God. But I will go on to say, and which is what Paul's going to do, is he's going to say, let me show you salvation for the whole world. And I think that's important kind of to see and understand. So the picture of rebellion reminds us that the righteous can rejoice as God rescues them from the plight of the wicked, but it also reminds us that, hey, wicked man, hey, rebel, there is one, one hope for you. And we're going to look at that just real quick. So if you'll turn to Romans 3, and I'll just be brief here. I just want you to see it. Now, here's kind of a question. How can admitting that we are evil be the way to lasting joy? Like, that's, that's a good question. How is it that admitting that you are evil be a way to lasting joy? That's a, I mean, that is a really helpful 
question. In Romans 3, this is what Paul says, all men, Jew, Gentile, whole world, is under God's wrath, the religious and the irreligious. None of them have any hope in themselves. None. Not one. So he quotes this passage. And the message of the gospel is this. Listen. But now the righteousness, Romans 3, 21-25. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So just we just see that. What we say is, fallen humanity is in a horrendous place. Those people that say, I don't believe in God. Those people who in their hearts say, I don't believe in God. They are functional atheists or maybe the the, the textbook atheists. Both of those people, uh, wherever they are, humanity comes here in a state of rebellion like david said in psalm 51 in sin my mother conceived me we come out that way but now there is a righteousness there is a good standing with god there is a way to escape god's wrath and there's only one way and that is through his son for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god but all who come in faith in believing in the lord jesus christ can be saved there is no distinction so you and me here today we would say put your faith in the lord jesus christ you are guilty and the only way that you can be considered both not guilty and in good standing is by putting your hope and faith in the lord jesus christ so today i would say to you if you don't have lasting joy the first step is to say i am more evil than i ever thought i was and God is more merciful than I ever thought he was. Right? And, you, and see that and trust in him and hope in him. So the question is, have you been born again by the Spirit? Put your hope and trust in Christ as the only hope for you to be saved so that you can have true lasting joy that none of the things that you think will give those to you will ever give to you. And you can have true lasting joy forever and ever. Amen. Kind of, I mean, that's what you'd say. And just stop there. So for you today, I don't know exactly where you are, but I would say to you, put your hope and trust in Christ. He is the one who redeems, saves, delivers, rescues, gives you joy forevermore. Stop trying to find it when you preach to yourself over and over, no God, no God, no God. Instead say, yes, there is a God I want to live for him. And by his grace and for his glory, the rest of my life, I want to do so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask for wisdom and direction as we seek to live out a life that would bring honor to your name. In Christ's name, amen.